If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Zen is America's number one nicotine pouch. It's made with only six simple ingredients. Plus, Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day hassle-free trial. There are lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Let's talk about Ross for a second. How far did you get in that process? I got to the studio. Okay. And I had, a, I guess it had two. They moved me up quickly to the studio level. I didn't make it past that. <laughs> Years later, when I was working with Jim Burroughs uh, on Will and Grace, I, I, he directed the first 12 episodes of Friends. And I said, you know, Jimmy, I don't know if I never got to meet you, but I got pretty far along there on the, uh, the Friends casting. And he said, Oh, honey, you were wasting your time. They wrote the part for Schwimmer. <laughs> and that was the end of that. That was the end of that dream. Hi, I'm Eric McCormack. And I am so embarrassed. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back. To Off the Beat, I am, as always, your host, Brian Baumgartner, and you just heard from my guest today, the incredible and incredibly funny-looking Eric McCormack. You might know him from his tenure playing the groundbreaking Will Truman on Will and Grace, for which he earned an Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, or maybe you know him from his time-traveling show, Travelers, or his crime drama, Perception. Eric has, well, he's done it all. And as they said during the dedication of his Walk of Fame star, he's a national treasure, even though he's Canadian. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to argue with that. No, Eric is, he is indeed a treasure in the U S and Canada, all over the world. I have gotten to know him working on our new show. The other black girl down in Atlanta. I'm excited to dig into his life with all of you here from his background as a theater actor to his amazing friendship with Elton John. You're in for a treat today. I'm not going to make you wait one moment longer. My new bestie, and soon to be yours, Eric McCormack. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. Well, well, well. 
Hi. Hi. How are you? I mean, you know, I'm good. How are you? I'm in my little crappy. I, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to. The only place in, in my home that this kind of thing works, podcasting and all of that, is in my crappy little office, which I have not updated in years, and it's just messy. And I, I feel like I'm the gimp when I'm down here. Like I've been uh, locked down here. <laughs> They're gonna let me upstairs eventually. Well, I mean, I don't really want the visual image of you being a gimp in your office, but it's there now. So it's there now. Sorry. Uh well, first of all, happy new year. Happy new year to you, buddy. What a strange little little th- am I gonna see you again in the new year? I, I don't I mean I, don't, I don't I don't know. I mean I guess you know better than I what we can say to people, but uh Eric and I are are working on uh a new show together down in my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know. I will see, I guess. Uh, yeah, I, it's a bit, I'm, I'm excited. It's based on a book called The Other Black Girl. And uh, we're keeping the title, which, of course, is a white guy is always a, new, a very embarrassing title. To, what are you working on? <coughs> the, the Other Black Girl. The what? The Other, the other Black Girl. It's, it's a book. It's based on a book, an award-winning book. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a great 10 episode, half hour, uh, the three young women starring in it are great. Uh, and Brian and I um, have some fun stuff to do, but we're not sure if Brian's uh, back in the next couple of episodes. We're not sure. It's all yeah, great. we're not sure. We probably shouldn't say. I, shouldn't I don't know. I always feel like I'm going to get in trouble anytime before something I, is <laughs> out to say anything. But I can officially say that I am working and have gotten to know you in Atlanta, which has been delightful. Indeed. We've had a couple of great dinners together. Yes. Um, well, I, I want to I end there, but I want to go back now, as we have discussed and as my research has confirmed, you're originally from Canada. I yes, I'm a Toronto boy. Yeah. And in fact, my family's Toronto for about four generations. And uh, my parents grew up in the east side of town, and uh, I grew up in the suburbs, and and didn't really make it out of there till I was almost thirty, and that was in just and that was to go west to Vancouver. I, I didn't really come to to L.A. until yeah, I was about my thirtieth birthday, thirty first. Right, and you you were primarily doing theater early on, correct? Yeah, I was. I mean, years later, I would hear about actors that had started pre-med or or, may, or maybe they just discovered acting in their twice. Like, what? I've been acting since I was five years old. Right. And, you know, I wasn't a child star or anything. I was just, that was, I knew from the age of about six, that's what I was going to do. And I was in every school play and uh, went to theater school in in Toronto and then left a little early to apprentice at a Shakespeare Company, and so my twenties were spent con- almost entirely in in Canadian theater. Wait, but six years old. I understand you were inspired by Mel Blanc. Yes, for sure. Who voiced all the Looney Tunes, Don Adams in uh-huh. Get Smart, and Woody Allen. This is a collection. Yes. This yeah, is I, a- I wasn't a big Woody Allen fan at six. Uh, that came a little bit later, but. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You know, my, another big one that only Canadians would really know, uh, sort of the Canadian version of Mr. Rogers was a wonderful uh, character named Mr. Dressup, who was uh, played by an actor named Ernie Coombs. And he literally had a, what they called a tickle trunk. Every morning, every kid would watch the show across Canada, and he would pull costumes out of a trunk and become that character. And I, I swear that is is my earliest influence. But then, yeah, Mel Blanc's a big one for me. I'm sure a lot of actors would say the same, that when I realized, because at the end, of, Looney Tunes were much bigger for my family than uh, Disney. I would watch Looney Tunes every day. And, and at the end of it, as you're watching those very speedy credits that go by, it would say, voice characterization, Mel Blanc. And I thought, what the hell does that even mean? And then I discovered that it was one guy doing all of it. And I thought, well, this is, this is a living somehow. <laughs> well, but isn't that crazy, right? Like, I go through that with my kids. It's a complicated thing, right? To understand that this is done by a person, the animated voices. This is very complicated. Right. 
I've done very little. I did one kids uh, thing, which was called Pound Puppies. I did three seasons of Pound Puppies. But by, by that point, my kid was already, I don't know, 12 or something. So he wasn't uh, aware of that particular work. But it is interesting. Once, once in a blue moon, a guy's come up to me in the street with his little kid, and he's pointed at me and said, honey, that's lucky. That's lucky the dog. <laughs> and, yeah, the look on, on the face is like, no, that is definitely not lucky. That is no. Now, did you have a trunk that you would take costumes out of? Oh, yeah. Oh, you did? Absolutely. I mean, I, just, I said to my mother very early on, I'm just going to, of course, what it was filled with was my dad's old shirts, you know, but that's okay. I make the <laughs> hats, my, you know, and anybody that disposed of the hats was, was mine. You're just playing <laughs> different versions of your dad. <laughs> Isn't that true, though, of, of all this of This is dad working. This is dad <laughs> mowing the lawn. This is dad. Yes. Yeah. This is dad as a gangster. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a huge, I mean, I was th- that traditional kind of lonely kid. I had one best friend through my, through my elementary years, but luckily he played along. I always thought he was like 50-50 with me in this. It wasn't until years later when I was talking about the games we would play and the crazy characters and the stories we'd create and the imagination. You'd be like, dude, that was you. I just, I was just trying to keep up with what, I, don't know what the, I don't know what the hell you were doing. Because I would say, and it was a lot of stealing things from TV. You know, I'd watch MASH or All in the Family with my dad or, or some, some more serious stuff like crime-solving stuff with my mom. And I would just, t- the next day, that's what I would act out uh, right. all the time. So. I think while so many actors uh, were so influenced by, say, films, my earliest influence is definitely all all television. How were your parents? Were they supportive? Yeah, you know, the the story I tell, and I try to shorten it as time goes by, but you know, basically my father was a traditional suburban dad that got in the bus every day and went to uh, a job as a financial analyst for Shell Oil. And uh, when I started to get deeply into the musicals I was doing and wearing my rainbow suspenders from Godspell all the time. And right. he, he put up with it. He, he said, that's good. Cool. You're very you're, well done. Well done. Uh, I got into a college called Ryerson, uh, which was the theater program there. And yes. they, they were supportive. And that's about it. Until second year, I found, I was looking in my parents' attic. I found a photo album of my father's years at Ryerson as an actor. He had that, that was his dream, and he graduated at 52 and then just stopped one day and didn't and just went back to school for accounting and never looked back to the point where he never told me ever. Wow. And I tried to pick his brain by this point. This would have been the early 80s, and uh, he said, Oh, well, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't as serious as you are. And, 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 but he clearly had just made a very kind of early fifties decision that there's, you know, there's a, there's food to be put on the table and, uh, and your dreams are, are not real and you've got to look at reality. And so the, the fact that I've sort of got something um, from him uh, that he wouldn't even really admit to, until years later, he'd come to Will and Grace tapings and he'd get have a martini and go, yeah, I taught him everything he knew. <laughs> yeah. Did you, though? But, uh, but, but he was, never met. When you went, he never mentioned, oh, I went there? No. We had a teacher in common. The late Jack McAllister taught me speech, and he, 30 years earlier, had taught my father. And, of course, he never made the connection. And certainly, I didn't. So... Yeah, so they were very, very supportive, and they got a great thrill out of it as, it, as the years went by. But uh, that always hung there as a great mystery. They're, they're both gone now, and I just, I'll never fully solve why, not why you don't pursue that dream, but why you don't even mention it ever as your right. son is deep in the heart of it. I'll never know. Um, after you left Ryerson, you accepted a position at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival. So were you, you were doing the whole Shakespeare ensemble doing various shows? Is that? Yeah. yeah. My theater school was very classical. So I was very prepared for this and uh, got an apprenticeship. And there are people that the the Stratford Festival in Canada, just outside of Toronto is uh, the biggest in North America. And it is, it's fantastic. And there are people that stay there their whole lives. And I ended up there for five seasons, which is, 
nine months of the year. So it was five full years of my life. And in the winters, I would go to other theaters in Canada to do uh, whatever I could get. Um, but there was no television for the longest, longest time. And uh, But I, did, I ended up doing, in that period of time, about half the canon, about 17 of Shakespeare's plays. Wow. Uh, and I was an apprentice in a lot of them. I was just carrying a spear or understudying. But then I got a few good parts. And, and by the end of it, by it was 89, I just sort of was starting to get the feeling that that's not my destiny. Okay, so let's talk about that for a second. Was was there a time, because you and I have talked about, I started off in theater as well. Yeah. Was there a period of time where you thought, like you mentioned, many people were there. They were lifers there. What, did you think that was your path or early? You said there's a moment you decided no, but. Yeah, I I was so, such a, a theater geek at that point and making okay money as theater goes. Right. That all of the dreams that I'd had as a kid of you know watching television and the idea of being on a television show or anything like that kind of went away. I wanted the I wanted the respect. I wanted the, the sort of the highfalutin life of being a poor theater actor. But I also started to realize that I I had a this goes back to the Woody Allen reference. I I my style was not intrinsically uh, Elizabethan. Okay. Uh, I was I was starting to get more and more sort of urban Jewish in my delivery, and the directors, <laughs> literally John John Neville, who uh, who was directing a, a production of Three Sisters at one point, I was playing Baron Tusenbach, and he stopped me in the middle of a run and said, "Right, Eric, he's a Russian Baron. He is not Woody Allen." Because I just I, hands were in my pockets, and I was trying to find you know the the modern sort of. And and I couldn't stop it. And I played Demetrius the same way. <laughs> it's like I eventually let go for being too sitcommy eight years before Will and Grace. So interesting. I played two Zimbabwe. Yeah, by I, the way. It, did you really? I did. I love that part. Yeah, it's a great. I part. love that role. It's a great part. The relationship with Irina, beautiful. Yeah. Did you? And he plays the piano in the first act. Did you play? No, faked it. I didn't. Yeah, I faked it too. But they, what I loved is that because of the nature of the stage, they had to get rid of that piano quickly. How do you do that? So they had built a piano that looked like a baby grand from the audience. I mean, it was incredible, but you could lift it with one hand. It was a complete fake with the thinnest plywood. But I, because I spent my whole adolescence in my bedroom pretending to be Freddie Mercury. So I, I just, the idea that I could sit there and recite my lines and talking to Marina and, and act like I'm playing this music, I, I just made me so happy. <laughs> so you have a moment where you're at Stratford and you start thinking that maybe you want to switch gears. Do, do you consider it at this moment? Because I did, by the way, spoiler alert, I'll answer my own question before I ask it. Did you consider it changing careers? Well, at this point, I'm still basically Toronto based, right. and there really was there. There were some actors that you know got some Canadian series that didn't do a whole lot of theater, and a lot of theater actors that couldn't get in at the CBC. But for the most part, there was a lot of bleed over because it was a limited okay. acting pool. So it didn't seem like I had to fully change careers, but I was pretty aware that I had to change something. That that whatever this sort of uh, flamboyant theatricality that I'd enjoyed for years, something was going to change. And it wasn't landing much in Toronto. And then in 92, this is a couple of years later, I flew, because somebody told me there was so much more television going on in Vancouver, Canadian and a lot of American stuff. So I flew out there and slept on my friend's couch and, and started auditioning. And uh, the big lesson came when I auditioned for the original The X-Files. They'd already started, they'd shot the pilot, they were starting to shoot episodes, and I was auditioning for a guest star, for Chris Carter. And I did my scene, and he said, okay, just uh, just one more time, just do less. I said, oh, okay. I tried to, did it again. He said, yeah, less. I went, really? Okay. And now I'm, I'm practically whispering, and I'm trying not to move anything. <laughs> and he said, one more time, he said, less. And I said, if I do less, I won't be doing anything at all. And he said, yeah, that's kind of what we're going for. And I did. I simply couldn't understand until I saw, you know, the pilot, and I went, "Oh, okay. I, I got to learn how to do that because <laughs> I, I don't know how to not do things with my eyes and 
move my hands. And it, it is so. It is in a way to your question. It is a new kind of skill. It's a new career in a way. Yeah, you get your first break on Street Justice. <laughs> um, yes, Car- Carl Weathers and I. Carl Weathers and I solving crimes. But you, this is drama now, which I guess makes sense. I mean, you're doing Lear, right? But my guess is not a ton of theatricality in that. Or in Lonesome Dove, which comes shortly after that. Yeah, the Lonesome Lonesome Dove was the big change for me because I was doing the like like a lot of guys that were in Vancouver around that time, that sort of twenty one Jump Street time. There was a lot of young, good looking guys. We were all vying for the same parts, and a lot of the television was badly written. There was no great. This was the Lonesome Dove in '94 was a spinoff of the the miniseries, and it was to play this. I hesitate to use the word macho, but this this sort of tough Confederate colonel with the accent, and I had my hair was kind of long at the time, and I grew a beard, and it was so not me. It was so the opposite of everything I'd ever done. Right. So getting it was pretty awesome, and and it really in my brain, I thought this is what I will be. I, I didn't think that necessarily this show is going to make me famous, but I thought this is how I'll be perceived now in the business because I was thirty one. I'll in my thirties I'll be. Tough Macho. guy that ride, rides horses and shoots guns. and Right. And that's what I'll be until I'm a gay lawyer, I guess. Is the, uh, <laughs> Southern, <laughs> Southern Confederate soldier. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly what I think of you. I know. These uh, days. <laughs> so you're doing these dramas. Is there a thought in your head about comedy, about w- wanting that or feeling that? Like that's where you should be, or were you just yeah. auditioning and trying to get something? Yeah, I mean, b- both both those things are, are true. I was definitely auditioning and trying to get something, and you know, to go back to the tickle trunk. I mean, I whatever costume I'd pull out, it could be funny, but it could be serious. I, I loved, I loved playing in my backyard. When I was a kid, I'd play cops, and I decided that they were divorced, so they were angry, and I, all these. You know, there, there was there was a dramatic side to me that also needed to be fed and, I, and a lot of theater school was was that but the, what was happening you know, i was doing lonesome dive i was playing this incredibly serious part but when i'd go home i'm watching seinfeld right. and i'm watching friends and you know, i'd grown up on cheers and it was like I, like there was a big part of me that was going god damn it because <laughs> i i got lonesome dove having only weeks earlier, auditioned for Ross on Friends. Okay. I'd done my first pilot season and nothing had come of it. And I, Lonesome Dove was a result of a Canadian audition. So, but I was very aware now of what was happening on television that I loved, which was the great sort of must see TV stuff on our network. <laughs> right. Well, wait, let's talk about Ross for a second. How far did you get in that process? I got to the studio. Okay. And I had, a, I guess I had two. They moved me up quickly to the studio level. I didn't make it past that. <laughs> Years later, when I was working with Jim Burroughs uh, on Will and Grace, I, uh, he directed the first 12 episodes of Friends. And I said, you know, Jimmy, I don't know if I never got to meet you, but I got pretty far along there on the, uh, the Friends casting. And he said, Oh, honey, you were wasting your time. They wrote the part for Schwimmer. (laughs) And that was the end of that. That was the end of that dream. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen nicotine pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at Zen.com. That's ZYN.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Talk to me about Will and Grace. Was this just an audition? This was an opportunity? Did you know any of the players involved? I didn't know anybody. Tracy Lillianfeld had uh, cast it, and she had, ca- had tried to cast me in one or two other things. So she was definitely what got me in the room. I was not a known... Back at that time, I was just reading Matthew Perry's book, and it reminded me that in that sort of period uh, through the 90s and um, pilot season... Everybody sort of knew, seemed to know everybody. And right. uh, if, you're not, if you didn't get this one, you're going to get that one. And, and I don't think I was in that pool. I wasn't aware of being in that pool. I was just down from Canada. I didn't know that many people. But if a casting director sees you and believes in you, they'll get you in. And that's, that's what happened there. And I, I read this. I knew, because this, by this point, it's 97. And it's and Friends and Mad About You. And they're, they're all like gigantic shows. Seinfeld, of course. So I knew with the... the pond I was trying to swim in and I knew a good script when I saw it and it was a great pilot script and I just I went in I was my hair was quite long and I was wearing this odd sweater I I I, I look back down and go what the fuck was I thinking but but I went in and I just did this one scene it was on a park bench with with uh, Grace and I don't think that scene ever made it to the show but I did that one scene and Max Muchnick who was the the gay one of the two that created the show just jumped out of his seat and said, okay, just so you know, you never have to be more gay than that. And I went, well, oh, oh, okay, okay. That's good. That's good. Right. Thank you. I don't know. Cause they were trying to find that balance of, you know, cause they knew that they could, with Jack, they could go crazy, but with Will, what is that balance? And so I was just gay enough, but, uh, <laughs> but that was one of, I'm pretty sure six auditions. And what was weird is that I kind of felt like I had it in that room. I just, I could see it in Max and David's eyes. But of course, there's all these other levels. There's all these other people to please. And then it was a strange little weird period of time because this was just before Christmas. A period of time over Christmas where I had this other opportunity in Canada and I I just wasn't sure. And I kind of said to them, I'm going to pull myself out of this for a while. And Max called me at my home in Vancouver. It says, Max Muchnick, what are you doing? He said, well, well, I said, I'm just not sure. There's a whole lot of other scripts to, to sort of consider. It's pilot season. He said, if you pass on this, you are making the biggest mistake of your life. <laughs> and he was right. He was yeah. right. And I came back and I woke up one morning in Vancouver, January 2nd, 3rd of 98. And I just turned to my wife and I said, I think I've made a terrible mistake. And she said, yeah, maybe. So I called and luckily they hadn't cast it yet. So. But it turned out later that all four of us had some version of that story, that all four of us, unbeknownst to us, it was kind of our part to, to and we all kind of almost blew it. Uh, what, to, what, to were they waiting, what were they waiting on? For, what do you mean in terms of? Well, like like you you were all sitting like over Christmas. They just they they wouldn't pull the trigger. They oh, they they weren't necessarily going to pull the trigger before Christmas because it was afterwards that net, you'd go to network and then. Uh, okay. 
I hadn't met Burroughs yet. I didn't even know Jimmy was directing. I don't think I would have dropped out if I'd known. But it was just very early in the process. It was one of those scripts that got considered early and auditioned for early because they, they knew. But as an actor, you, by that point, you've been trained to think, well, you know, let's get to late February when suddenly <laughs> I'm in demand, right. which is just a dumb, dumb game to play. But at the same time, not every television show is great. And you're thinking, you know, what if I sign up for, the, for this one and then ER comes up? But I mean, looking back, honestly, between you and I, you were talking about drama and comedy. Like, I, I don't think I could have done er and been happy it was genius and then noah wiley's become a good friend but i i know that my destination was was going to be sitcom i just i just know it was the show is a huge success how early did you realize what it was going to be for the lbgtq community i mean obviously there had been ellen there had been a few other shows but you know, completely centering on same-sex relationships, Will and Grace, definitely the first and most prominent of those shows. At what point did you realize that what you were doing was significant in another way? It's an interesting question because you would think the answer would be, oh, we knew. We didn't know at all because that's not what the writers were trying to do. They were trying to write a funny show, but and they'd been encouraged their initial pilot scripts, Will and Grace were like the fifth and sixth characters in, in, in a kind of friends-like, otherwise mm-hmm. straight show. And it was Warren Littlefield at, who was running NBC that said, I've seen that before. Do, what about these two characters? And then, of course, they went on to create Jack and Karen, who were even crazier. So it's there was never a political agenda. It, it was almost the opposite. At first, it was like, how do we do this? How do we make these two men as gay as they are and not apologize for it and not hide behind things? Some of the advertising early on was a little soft soap. It was a little sort of friendship is the most important thing in life. But by the end of the first season, when we had been unapologetically uh, out in every episode, there's very few episodes that didn't have a number of bantery situations, uh, particularly between Jack and Will. But even into the second, third, fourth season, when Glad uh, was, was supporting us, we still weren't it didn't occur to us that we might be having an effect. We had the approval of the gay community. It didn't occur to us that we were having an effect beyond that. Okay. It really didn't. And it really almost was almost in years later. It was almost when the show was off the air. Because we got to a point where, I want to say season six, I, I, had a, I got married. Will got married to Tay Diggs. I mean, I was not only having... Um, not wasn't marriage at the time. What was that? Domestic partnership. Domestic partnership. We had a domestic partnership in my apartment. Hall and Oates performed in my apartment as I married Tay Diggs. <laughs> and then we, you know, then I kiss, then I kiss the groom. You know, so I'm, I'm kissing a, a black man, a white man kissing a black man on television. We're both, and there was almost zero hoopla because at that point we'd been so Will and Grace for so long that it's almost like us getting any sort of credit for doing something socially important had come and gone. We were just that silly show that had so many guest stars all the time. And it wasn't until later, like in, in it was after Joe Biden was on Meet the Press 10 years ago, and they were talking about marriage equality. And he said, he said, I think Will and Grace did more for to, to push that agenda and, and spread that word than in any other. And we all called each other and went, did, did you just hear that? Because we hadn't, even then, even six years after the show was off the air, thought of ourselves that way. It was only around that time that a lot of young people, and as gay marriage became law, young people or couples that have been together for 30 years started to approach all of us in the street and say, that made a big difference in my life. Incredible. You talked about the parade of guest stars that you had. You and I talked about it at dinner. You guys basically just anointed Emmy winners year after year. <laughs> yeah, Leslie Jordan obviously was yeah. more than just a guest star, was a significant recurring character yeah. on the show. How was it like working with, with Leslie and, and all these other stars? Well, I mean, yeah, Leslie was one of, of a few that was more than even just recurring. They, they became a fabric of the show. We always looked forward to, to that because the writers knew how to, had a right for someone like Leslie. They, they, from the moment he he appeared, well, well, well. I think that's how you began the broadcast today. Well, well, well. <laughs> um, he was always just 
joy. And, and, and some of our other Tim Bagley's, the guys that would come back, it was always nice to have that, that family. Cause you guys, on your show, you guys had such a big family to start with. I mean, yeah, every, we had episode 40, was, was, 47 people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I never thought about that. Actually. I don't think we talked about that. Really? It was really just the four of you. Yeah. I mean, at, and of course there'd be, and then people that my parents, I mean, I had great parents, uh, Grace had uh, great parents, but. We we got to a point with with guest stars because people loved to come on the show and the word got out there. It's a it's a fun week. We should go on Will and Grace. Right. That we would go to we beg the writers by season four. Be like, can we just have one, just one where it's just the four of us? And once in a while we'd have that, and it was and it was great fun because it felt like a little play. But most of the time it was an event, right? Because we'd say goodbye to Matt Damon and Michael Douglas would come on the show, and and so it, it was this other thing. And sometimes, depending on the person, if it was something like Madonna, it's like, who's who's servicing who here? Like, I mean, the whole week became about Madonna's here. As opposed to, well, what stories are we telling? What are the characters doing? You can't change everything from, from Madonna's schedule. But it did become that after a while. Well, it's, it's funny. And I never thought about this. But in some ways, there was a period of time there where it was almost like SNL. Yeah. Right. It was it like was. there would there would be an ad for who was you know Will Ferrell's guest hosting SNL, and then yeah, Matt Damon is on Will and Grace yeah, this and, week, and it, it went from like one oh my god, this look at this one special, but you know, and suddenly well, it was one episode. We had John Cleese, uh, uh, Gina Davis, and somebody else. I mean, it was like three in the same episode. It was incredible. Yeah, and meanwhile, we were in a lot of ways the opposite. Right. We're a paper company in Scranton. Why would Matt Damon show up? Exactly. It's distracting to a degree on Will and Grace, but it'd be more distracting in Scranton. <laughs> you know, I mean, you'd be very aware of it. So maybe that was the, the logic. I don't know, because you guys all were so real. And there were so many of you being so real for so long. Right. That that's, a, that's a different fabric you don't want to necessarily fuck with. Um, talk to me a little bit about the decision for you guys to be done was this your decision the cast decision no it was it was mutual in that nearing the end of season seven we were all we were all making that sort of mistake that happens where you you just think there's so much else i'm I'm sort of done with this i've done this i've done this let's move on let's move on and i say mistake because the you know we could have the writers wanted to do, we all wanted to do it, but at the same time, we didn't want to go out badly. We didn't want the numbers to start to drop below a certain thing, and we didn't want to repeat ourselves. So there was a decision made that season eight was our last. And so I liked that in retrospect because we went out with uh, our heads high. And But it was also, once it was done, there was definitely a period of time. I can't speak for the others. I know for myself, it was, it was a few years before I realized that I was searching. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to do the Matt LeBlanc, Joey thing. I wasn't going to dive into another sitcom. And, uh, and in fact, I found, started to find dramas after that. But it still took me a couple of years, a little theater, a little of this, to sort of get not just Will, but the whole experience, though, because it's, you're spoiled rotten. You're spoiled I lived close to the stage. We worked 22 hours a week. It was a pretty great life that we all eventually took for granted, I think. You... Received four Emmy nominations, one win as Outstanding Lead Actor in a Comedy Series for Will and Grace. What do you value more, that or being named one of People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People? (laughs) I mean, it is neck and neck, my friend. It is a a toss-up. Um, talk to me about the talk, <laughs> talk to me about, um, uh, by the way, I didn't mention double, double boil in trouble yet. Yeah, um, thanks. I appreciate it. Talk to me about that Emmy win. I mean, to win that award yeah. and to receive that, that validation from the Academy. What was that for you? It was really huge for I me. Mean, you know, the, for one thing, the only knowledge I had of that particular award, not the Emmy in general, but that specific award is that that's what Don Adams won in 1970. And famously got so drunk with Don Rickles that he he fell on the wings, the pointy, pointy oh, wings God. of the Emmy and made himself bleed like a vampire. <laughs> Which I, I don't know if it's apocryphal. I don't want to know. I love it. Um, but 
it meant a lot to me because I always felt like I was on the outside coming in because I was Canadian, I think, possibly. You know, I was coming from another country, coming from uh, from the theater. I, I didn't have a lot of friends in L.A. when I Even when I got the job, I was still, I really didn't know anybody. So it felt like approval for the actual work. And it was for an episode that I was really proud of. It was for the sort of flashback to when Will comes out to, to Grace. It was a beautifully written episode by Jeff Greenstein. And... Um, I just thought if, if it was ever, if I'm ever going to get this, if this is ever a reality, it'll be this one. It was just not, it was nice for that, in that one moment to know that I was, what's the, the word we use all the time now, seen, you know? I felt seen like, yes, we see you, you, you can do this. And so it's, it's, uh, it sits on my piano. I, 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 it does matter to me. And, you know, the, um, pe- you know, people's most beautiful, I've got framed over my bed. So they're, they're really, I don't. I have it framed over my son's bed just to remind him. <laughs> to remind him. Yes, to drive him forward. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zen won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zin. Find your Zin online or in a store near you at zin.com find. That's zyn.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You talk about your piano. You told me an amazing story. I have to bring mm-hmm. up before you went to Ryerson Theater School, you went to Sir John A. McDonald Collegiate Institute. Wow. Yes. Um, with a few other notable people, Mike Myers being yeah, one. Mike was there. Uh, David Furnish. David being- Furnish, yes. David Furnish and I were in a theater class together, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. And part of a real little clique of, of um, three guys and, and, my, and my friend Helga. And we did Godspell and Pippin and the Fantastics together. And eventually he moved. We kept in touch a little bit. Then he moved to London. We lost touch. And uh, when we finally sort of reconnected again, I was just starting to date my wife. And he was just starting to date Elton John, uh, like mid-90s. 
and then shortly thereafter, Will and Grace happened. And they were the first, El- Elton and David were the first people, I think, in the UK to see it because it didn't exist there yet. And right. I w- I'd sent him a bunch of videotapes of season one, which they quite enjoyed, which led eventually to Elton being on the show. Um, my favorite story that I'll tell till I die is, is just that uh, I'd, uh, Elton asked me to host an event for Yamaha. And uh, Yamaha's sort of payment to me, they paid me in piano. So I was given a, a baby grand piano <laughs> that sits in the center of the living room to this day. And shortly thereafter, and we'd only ever seen David and Elton in, in the world at a restaurant. And David called and said he was in town. And Janet, my wife, Janet, said, well, tell David to come over. He said, well, why don't you just come over and see the house? He said, sure, we'll be over at eight. And I said, Janet? He said we. He said we. He did not say I. He said we. So sure enough, uh, Elton and David came over for dinner. My son was six months old, I think, at the time. And I eventually just said, Elton, you know you're going to have to christen the piano. He, uh, without a second thought, got up, walked into the living room, sat down at the piano, looked up at me. He's wearing a sweatshirt, like a velour sweat outfit. And he said, what would you like me to play? And I thought, this is it. This is my chance. This is my chance to show him that I'm serious here. I know my shit. I'm not going to say big, rocket. You're a man. big fan. I'm not going to say rocket band like some schmuck. So I, I said, okay, uh, I've seen that movie too from Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And he looked up at me and said, "Oh fuck off! I don't remember that song." <laughs> and I remember the moment. Feeling incensed as a fan, I was like, "What do you mean you don't remember that? You're supposed to know every song. You wrote it. You wrote it." <laughs> so uh, he didn't play that song, but I tell that story in my act occasionally, and do, and then I do. I've seen that movie too, too, which people don't remember, which is a great song. <laughs> what did he play? He played actually. He played another obscure song for me because my son was there. It's a beautiful song called "The Greatest Discovery." It's about a little boy waking up and hearing all this commotion and realizing that he has a brand new baby brother. And it's, I, I feel like it's, it's an impossible song to hear and not cry at the end. It's just right. so, it's Bernie Taupin's greatest lyrics, I think. And I, I do that, I sing that one occasionally too. But he sang that song at the piano. And then the next day, uh, I saw my neighbor, Thomas, and he was aware we had this new piano. We didn't know each other that well at the time. But he'd seen the piano arrive, and he said, uh, I couldn't help but overhear last night. You're, uh, you're getting pretty good. I said, thank you. Uh, um, you mentioned after Will and Grace, you had some time, and you started exploring other things, one of those being Travelers, the show, playing Traveler 34. 68. 68. <laughs> um, and you also produced and and you directed an episode for that show. How was how was that for you? Directing? Um, Travelers was a real. Uh, there had been a couple that had come before where I I did a show for a year called Trust Me uh, with Tom Cavanaugh, mm-hmm. and, and then I did a show for three years uh, called Perception, uh, where I, I played a neuroscience professor, and I had produced on that one too, and eventually directed one episode, and, and so it was a very okay. much a learning curve slowly through that through the uh, early. Tens, is that, what they, is that what we call them? Um, so by the time it was 2015 came along to the, and top of 16, that I got this offer and, and being a producer was included. Uh, Brad Wright, who created the show, which it was just really, really um, wanted to make me a part of it, to be a partner with me and bring me along. And, and I learned a lot from the directors in that show. So when I finally got to direct a few episodes of it, it was fantastic. It was fantastic. And I, I've come to associate directing with directing everyone that you, you know, that knowing the crew. Did you direct some offices? I can't yeah. remember. You did. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, what was your experience? You, uh, for me, it was so comfortable, even though it was new and, and it was a sci-fi show, not exactly my area, but I knew everybody and I knew they would yes. have my back. That's exactly right. Yes. I knew I could, I could, for me to screw up, the episode could still be great because of the other people involved and that they right. would support me in whatever way. And then if it was especially good, then that would only serve. It was like, I couldn't fail per se. Right. And, and because the, the style of 
I mean, most shows have a style that you can't veer too much from. The, the, the Office style, which I don't remember everyone anyone doing before, that const, the constant motion of the camera, just going to the one person and so they can give a quick look to the camera and going away, it was so unique and so its own thing that I imagine that, 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 that deciding what the camera work is going to be is the joke. You know, yeah. you, you know, whereas with the sitcom, you, you have to make sure the camera's pointed in the right way, but it's... It's more in the editing that you make sure you have the joke. But in your show, the joke was often what the camera was doing and who it was landing on. That's right. And and to what degree were people aware that they were being filmed yeah. at, at any given moment? Was it a right. spy? Was it not? Was That's the right. camera there? Or how much are you yeah. interacting with that camera? Are they on your team? Are you hiding from it? You know, <laughs> all of those. Yeah, I hadn't thought of those, those terms, questions. but that's right. Yeah. So it happens much more outside of the editing room in that in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. But tra- Travelers really was one I hoped would go a little longer. Three seasons, still on Netflix, still something I recommend people check out. Yeah. Around this time, you say you wanted it to go a little longer. Around this time, you start having discussions with Max and the folks at Will and Grace about coming back. Were you surprised about this? Was this yeah. something that had been discussed? No. I mean... First of all, the word reboot was pretty new to the lexicon at that point. Right. And we had, we finished in 2006. I mean, it. Yeah, it 11 was, years. Yeah, it was over. Yeah. What changed it? I, I do love this story is that Max had sent the entire set, complete with all the uh, set dressing, to Emerson College, his uh, alma mater. And it was set up there for 10 years in the library as a thing that people would look at. And eventually they needed the space and they, it happened to be in 2016, the spring of 16, that they called and said, look, uh, we're gonna, it's been 10 years. Can you take your set back? And as opposed to this being like, a, oh shit, what am I going to do with this? He flew the set back on his own dime, had it set up secretly in the basement, one of the basements of the studios at um, Radford and called us and said, would you do a little, would you come back and do a little video? Um, basically, I mean, it was called just get out the vote, but really it was for Hillary. It was for trying to stave off everything that happened. And we all said, God, sure. Okay. They wrote this very funny little 10 minute YouTube script. And the amazing thing, we came back together and somehow like none of us had changed that much. We kind of pulled it off. We looked like slightly older versions of, of how we finished. And it worked so well, this little 10-minute bit that we just dropped on the internet, that NBC called us and said, let's talk about this. So miraculously, it happened at all. But particularly for me, it happened in tandem with Travelers. And I had two years, 2017 and 18, where I was doing both shows in two different countries. And it was fantastic. (laughs) I've never been happier. Wow. Do you feel like the characters changed? The intent was that the, sh- the feel of the show, the look of the show, would not change. That it would be like, oh my God, Will and Grace hasn't gone anywhere. But that we, the writers would write to our age, you know, whether it be needing glasses or not understanding the young people. And so I think it was, it was a mix of both. I, for me, what I had to get my head around was we, we finished in 2006 with the idea that I was married and, and Grace was married. and. They came up with this notion in the very first scene of the of the new episode back where that was all just a dream, kind of a, you know, like, <laughs> what's his name in the shower on Dallas? Um, and I'm just glad they did because it wouldn't have been the show if we just were trying to tell Will and Grace plus children. It, it, it wouldn't have. So I like that we were, that the story we were telling now is they're freaking 50 and still single. And that was a, a different demographic to talk to because there's a lot of people out there, single at 50 or um, forced or whatever. So that it's it was nice to just show what that is. You're not just running around like sex in the city and everyone's 32. It's um, now we have uh, higher stakes. Were you proud of it? The reboot? Yeah, I was proud of the reboot. First of all, every department head came back. Wow. Everybody. Everybody. That's incredible. It really was. So there was a, definitely a feeling of this is ours. We have, this isn't uh, commerce. This is hopefully commerce down the road for people. But right now, 
this is us taking ownership of our thing and not somebody else rebooting it down the road. So yeah, there was a lot of pride in that. It felt to me like a chapter of a novel. Like it's, I guess when a, when a sequel comes along or something, you think, that movie doesn't need a sequel. That movie's fine just as it is. And then you <laughs> love the sequel and you go, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, yeah. I, I'm glad we had a chance to be them again, even if it was just for a few years. Yeah. You and Sean have uh, a new podcast coming out, Just Jack and Will. Yeah. A rewatch podcast of Will and Grace. Have you guys started recording those yet? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I've, been, um, I've actually been doing a podcast that is about to launch uh, with Stephen Weber, where we're talking. We're just actors eating and talking, and I would love to have you on that. Yes. Um, so we'll just have each other, just podcast with each other for the rest of our yes, lives. Yes, I love it. Nobody ever has to hire us. But no, Sean, I, I, I'm excited that Sean came to me and said, look, this, and he referenced the office ladies, you know, your, your pals, just looking at episodes and remembering it. And it's just such a, there's such a market in it now. You know, in, in, sort of in our day, there was a show, while it was on the air, would have reruns, you know, during the summer. That's kind of gone. I, I don't know who watches the show right. uh, again the second time. But the idea that shows are being discovered, your show, Friends, really, really rediscovered by a whole different generation because of streaming, has just created a whole different thirst for, for talking about them and referencing them. And, and so what I discovered, I had lunch with Sean not that long ago, and, and I confess that if it's on, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch our show. And he said, yeah, I never have. I, he said, I've never seen any of the episodes except for maybe the first time they aired. 20 years ago i said you're joking well then that's the show the show is you seeing the show really for the first time through new eyes and me knowing it too (laughs) too well (laughs) (laughs) well first of all that's awesome i i don't know if you did this when back in the day again i don't this doesn't happen anymore with streaming but there were the dvds Yeah, And we used to get called in in the summer when the DVD, when they were, because they were looking for, basically, they didn't want the DVD to say, this is episodes one through 26. They wanted bonus material. Always, yeah. And so then we would do some, uh, you know, basically commentary while the episode was happening on that. Here's what I always found. It was a mess because they would get like eight people and everybody would be talking over each other mm-hmm. and it would last <laughs> 21 minutes and then yeah. it would be done. And I don't think anybody learned anything, but this really gives an opportunity to talk about what was going on behind the scenes. So good for you. Yeah, I think I think that'll be fun. And also, I, I just, my favorite thing is bloopers. I've been following off the office bloopers on Instagram and at least twice a day. There's something that just, because you guys would break each other up. Yes. So much. So I, I, don't, I don't love bloopers that are just people forgetting their lines. I, I like when people remember their lines and it's they're so funny that the other person just can't keep a straight face. And that was your show so often. Well, yeah. Well, basically it was a, a secret hidden competition to try yeah. to get the other person to laugh. Did you guys have that or, or were you more restrained and well-behaved because yeah, it was there was, live. there was not so much because Jimmy Burroughs likes, we would shoot the whole thing in front of one live audience and that better not be over four hours or we're, it's going to, so you, you, you messed around a little for sure. And we do have some great bloopers, but you couldn't make it go on and on. And on. Whereas I, I sensed with you guys that you, I like, I saw in the other day where um, Steve was, he clearly done his, she'd said what he had to say, but he just kept going and no one was going to yell cut just to see who was going to break. And it was so much fun. It was so much fun. Because he would often break himself up, which really yes. made Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's the greatest. Where do you think Will and Grace stands in that line of great must-see TV shows? Uh-huh. I mean, that's such a stupid question, right? Like, well, what does that mean? It's only stupid but, in that it's not for me to decide, but it's... it's um, for me, I, I think that unlike Friends, it, it was not an instant hit. It didn't burst out of Monday nights at nine thirty and change the world. It's it was a slow burn, and I feel like you know when you see th- these days, I noticed like this past year there was a you know the top one hundred most important shows of all time thing. We didn't make it, but you know a show from last year made it, and it's like right. well sure, and we'll we'll see. 
<laughs> we'll see. It's a test of time thing. I, I don't know. I think that the that uh, not every episode, but there are certain episodes of Will and Grace that will stand uh, among the the best stuff um, for a long time. That's that's my feel. Well, you didn't say it, but I'll say it. I, I talked to you about the Emmy before and yeah, you, you know, there are certain things you're supposed to say and it's just an award and it's really about the work or blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing to me that's really cool about yours is, yeah, you mentioned that Will had quirks and finding those idiosyncrasies as season two, et cetera, went uh, along. But I think one of the hardest things in comedy is to be that character that mayhem happens around, right? It's mm-hmm. like, and on your show, there were certainly two and a half <laughs> swirling tornadoes yeah. that were happening around you at all times. But what that means is you have to be, you have to steer the ship. And it only is funny in relation to everybody else. And you stayed so, you were just so strong staying in the middle of those hurricanes, tornadoes or whatever, that your work was just so admirable. I've always admired your work and oh, appreciated thanks, you and, uh, and, and your role on that show. So uh, congratulations on thanks, all the man. success. I'm very excited to see your new show. The other black girl, our new show, your, um, your other new show. Well, I'm excited to see it. I, um, it'll be very interesting. The tone again, without giving anything away, the tone is very different, Yeah, but I'm used to that. So we'll see how it goes, but it's been such a pleasure to work with you and to get to know you, you and, too, man. And, uh, and it's been just great yakking. Great. Yakking. Congrats on this. On, on Thank how you. Many, how many of these you've done and how many people are listening. Well, awesome. thank you. I uh, want to sit down with you and Steven Weber soon. Yeah. What What is the name of that podcast? Uh, at this point, we're calling it, because it's about, it's about dining, uh, we call it Eating Out with Eric and Steven. Eating Out. I'm going to let so, that sit. Exactly. Um, right there. So, uh, <laughs> but we've done about 10. We've had some great people on, and we just want to, we just love mixing and matching uh, actors and actresses. And, and, and this, it's a lot of this. It's just... I, I love, I'll never get tired of hearing the stories of people in in high school, college, whatever it was, uh, bad stories, the, the worst the worst experience you ever had, the actors that were terrible to you. Yes. Never get bored of it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I will see you in Hotlanta. Okay, brother. Very soon. <laughs> Thanks for right, having Thank me. you, my friend. Bye, Ryan. Eric, thank you so much for stopping by today. It's been so great getting to know you. I'm glad that the cat's finally out of the bag with the other black girl coming to a theater set near you very soon. It's been awesome working with you. I look forward to our next meal. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Off the Beat next week. Well... We've got another new friend of mine coming on. Uh, Let's just say she has some political power. Until then, have a fantastic week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Diego Tapia. Our producers are Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan, Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by the one and only Creed Bratton. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zinn for a spin. Zinn nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction. Anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. 
Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge and enjoy 10 smoke-free, spit-free days for just $5.95. Order online and start your new journey today. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my! Look at that! He is! And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win! Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.